1800 B.C., give or take like a few years, there were these two men working for a pharaoh in Egypt. One was a cupbearer and the other a baker. Pharaoh had thrown them into prison and one night they both had a perplexing dream. And Joseph, the prisoner slash jailer, noticed that they were troubled and so he asked them what was wrong. They shared their dreams and he took this matter to God and then came back with an interpretation. He said, the Lord has told me what is about to happen to you. The cupbearer would be restored and the baker would be hung. So the next day, that's exactly what happened. One experienced judgment from Pharaoh for whatever reason and the other mercy. In that story, you see very quickly the issue at hand and the resolution. Last week, we kind of left you in that place of like both Saul and David in a dilemma. This week, we kind of show you how that all fleshed out, the resolution of that. But in both cases, in both of these stories, both with Saul and David and with the cupbearer and the baker, God reveals what he's going to do. And how he's going to do it in his word is true. It is spot on every time. Some of you may say, well, how do you know? Am I the cupbearer or the baker? Like, how am I going to know where I stand? I mean, am I in the place of Saul or in the place of David? In one sense, you say, well, I know I'm not the king of Israel and all that kind of stuff, but like, Where do I fit in that? And and today as we conclude, we're going to kind of bring that to a head. But but I think it's just important for you to understand that there really are kind of two places where you could be. And maybe today you will see that with clarity. Now, I would say also that like when you face dilemmas, like if you're looking at some kind of troublesome time or some difficulty, probably you would be listening right now more closely than maybe some of you are because you are there, you're living out uh, some storm. You almost maybe feel like it's the perfect storm that kind of came out of nowhere. But I think when you're thinking about this particular story, especially with the life of David, he walks into a storm, has some calm, and then steps into another. And some of you may feel that way it's almost like you know you've experienced trouble maybe you're in the eye of the hurricane and it's about to come at another level or maybe you can look back in your life and you say I remember the winds they came in they were insane I remember there was a bit of calm I took my breath and then the winds came from the other direction and it almost knocked me uh, into a place where I would never ever recover wherever you might find yourself today The only thing that matters is whether God is for you or against you. I mean, that that really kind of, when you come down to all of life, that's the big question. Is God for me or is he against me? Am I under God's care or am I under God's judgment? And so we're going to look at that, talk about it at the end, and hopefully help you bring that uh, together in your mind so that you might make sure that you grasp fully how God 
brings people into his care versus being outside of it. So let's uh, just remind ourselves a couple of things. One is this, chapters um, 27 and 28 are both the dilemmas. David and Saul both in a dilemma. 27 David, then Saul 28. And you're kind of left there where it's like the author doesn't finish what he starts with David and then he doesn't finish what he starts with Saul. He doesn't finish the story. And he probably does that to put these people in contrast. One is been, has been asked to like shed the blood of his own countrymen. To stand with the enemies of God and to like go to battle. The other, Saul, has been told by Samuel that he would die. That he would come under the judgment of God. And so... I think it's just important that you kind of see that. So as we look at it, you'll be able to clearly understand it. Again, today we have to say, is, do, I, do I stand in a state of deliverance? Or do I stand in a state of like damned? Like, am I going to experience like life eternal or life eternally separated. I mean, in my mind, you might say, are you sure this about Saul? I, I, I can't answer all the questions about Saul. I can just say to you, you need to examine yourself with regard to where you stand with God. And so that this is important, I think, as we move through it. And hopefully you'll keep that in your mind. So let's look at the resolution here. Um, David, again, is in this place where, and if you remember, uh, he left Israel to get away from Saul. He goes out to this place, to Gath. He goes to these people there. He says, will you take me in? The king takes him in. He says, I don't want to live in the city. Can you set me out somewhere in a little town? He moves out into this town. David begins to, to, to go out and do these little raids, and he lies about it and says he's going against Israel. Uh, the king begins to trust him. And so when the king decides to join with all the Philistines and attack them, he calls David up and says, David, we've got the, this moment. We're going to go attack your own countrymen and wipe them out. Do you want to go? And David is left with, what do you do with that? And so he begins to go towards the battlefield and, uh, you know, presumably has something in mind that he would do. Now... The Philistines, the Philistine lords, if you will, when David shows up on the scenes to fight in this battle against his own countrymen, the, the Philistine lords say like, no. I mean, have you not heard Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands? He's not going into battle. He will not fight with it. We don't trust that he will fight with us. They actually say, what is this Hebrew doing here in chapter 29? And, and they're kind of wanting to know, what, what are you doing? So you see that in 29.5. I mean, don't you know this about him? We're not going to allow him to fight. So the king, Akish, says, like, David, you have to go. You can't go into the battle. You're just going to have to leave. You would think, like, David would be, like, with a smile internally saying, Man, that was a, God just rescued me. But he has this kind of like, he looks at the king and is like, what's the deal here? You know, I don't know if he's just acting in a way to make the king kind of feel like he really wanted to go into battle against uh, his own countrymen. But, but the, at the same time, you're a little bit like, did David have this plan concocted where he'd get in the middle of the battle, 
destroy the Philistines, rescue the people. We don't know all that stuff, but we do know he kind of puts you in a little bit of like, David, man, back down. It's okay. All is well. Anyway, Akish says to him, look, you've always been faithful to me, but you need to go in peace. You need to go early in the morning uh, and you need to get out of here. And so you look at this situation and you think, all, I mean, David's rescued. Providentially, the enemy of David, the Philistine lords, they, they rescue him without knowing it. It's, it's the most shocking kind of uh, picture here. And I think that's just important for us to understand. You cannot trace out sometimes how God will deliver uh, there, there are so many times in our lives, I think, that we're looking at something and saying like, well, th- this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. And you have all these things that could happen, and this will probably happen. And then, like the most insane thing happens, and you're like, how did that happen? I don't even know how it worked out that way. A lot of times you look back in your life and you could look back over it and say how I got from here to there. I I don't I mean, I never would have planned it, never would have understood it. God's hand was working and he rescued me. It's almost like he demonstrates inexhaustible mercy towards us, even when. Maybe we would kind of stand up and say, I've assessed the situation. This is the best. This is how I'm going to route these armies and win this battle and deliver Israel. Whatever it might be that David was going through in his mind, God delivers him in his way. Now, you think, okay, all is well. I mean, there's sometimes in your life, and I don't know uh, if you've felt this before, where you're like, there was a little trouble. You say, oh, next thing, boom. Third thing, boom. And you're all of a sudden like, I mean, I'm getting buried up in this. Like, it just seems to keep hitting, hitting in waves. It's almost like attacking us. Well, David leaves this situation. What I would see is his 60-mile trek back to this town was the eye of the hurricane. Only to come into this next thing that is more atrocious than where he was before. So look at chapter 30. We see David's kind of dilemma getting worse because when he gets to Ziglag where he's been living, the Amalekites that Saul was to destroy early on completely had raided their town. They set it on fire and they took all of his livestock, his wives, their families, the kids, everything. It's almost like they walked in and said, we'll take all of that, now set it on fire. Then they like kind of take off and go their merry way. And so that's where David and them, them, like that's where they find themselves. And so what happens is, you'll notice verse 6, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. So they're upset because of what's taking place, rightly so. And so why not just stone him? That will make us feel better. I mean, you know, that is real. I mean, that that happens a lot, you know. It's like, oh, I knew he he led us here. Stone him. You know, they did it to Moses, did it to David. They'll do it today. You know, it's kind of one of those things 
where you just kind of always like, you know, you're aware of that reality. So what does David do? He's heartbroken, just like the people. And I'm always saying, I'm always saying to William, William, you have to be the calmest guy in the room. Like, trouble's coming. And leadership is not, when trouble comes, stone people. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Or trouble comes, you're running around like, like, oh, and so you like start firing off and attacking everybody in the room because you hate everyone all of a sudden. That, that's not leadership. That is not leadership. Those are the kind of people you don't want as leaders. You know, that's why so I'm saying I'm whispering in his ear, bro, don't let yourself become someone who is dominated by your emotions when trouble comes. I want you to be calm. And, and I want you to have a steadiness of mind. And what am I saying to him? I, I'm trying to get him to capture in his mind, not only that just be calm. I'm not going to just say, hey, let's wear a bracelet, hashtag be calm. And you just kind of, I look at it. You know what I'm saying? I want him to look to the Lord. I want him to see him reigning on the throne, and I want him to have a settled vision of God sitting on the throne and him being the great deliverer and that he can trust him. I, I really do. I want him to stand there calm. And then, as a result, he can bless other people. When God is in his sights, he can like step down and bless people. He can serve people when everybody else is losing their mind. So what does David do? Like a king. Not like Saul that was always running around at the whims of the people or acting crazy or be like, strike off his head, kill all the, you know, the priest. Like a fool. It always amazes me. Like, you in leadership, you're looking for character first. You know, it's like, where, what kind of character does a man have? And then you say, David with a calm mind, with a clarity, with conviction. It's not that he's like willy-nilly, he doesn't care. It's with, with convictional leadership, he is sitting there, he strengthens himself in the Lord. He runs to the one who delivers. He understands who delivers. So, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. It's... It's a personal thing with him. It's not like the trouble comes and he's like, if there's a God out there, rescue us. If, if, if you're a God that listens to people, if you have ears, if you have ears, if you can move, if you can change things, listen to us not that is a personal relationship with a personal God who commands the earth and everything in it one of the authors I read just it was he said some things that really helped me in this regard but he just said venting over the sorrow that you face is not strengthening yourself in the Lord. 
Some people think that ministering to someone in trouble or struggling that's venting, I just let them vent and then, okay, there's a place for that. There is a place for that. But that is not where it ends. To be strengthened in the Lord is to, yes, okay, it's hard. Of course it is. I know that it is. To strengthen someone, though, in the Lord is in the midst of the sorrow is being able to speak to them the promises of God. That's what Jonathan did. Jonathan was a true friend. That's why you put people, sometimes I want to say, get people around you that are true friends, that are mature, that are spiritually minded, that can see with clarity, that have character in the face of crisis. What did Jonathan do? He strengthened him in the hand of God. That's what he did. You just... You understand God's deliverance here of of David is such a beautiful thing as a man interacts with a God that he knows. And he runs to him as the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. In the midst of sorrow. Did he sorrow? Yes. Did he cry out to God? Yes. But then what does he do? He is reminded of God's word. There was a Scottish pastor that wrote in his diary in 1864 of a grievous wound. Isabella, his wife of 17 years, died apparently of complications following childbirth. He wrote that on the day of her death, he had, according to his custom, been meditating on a scripture text during dinner and tea. On that day, it had been Nahum 1-7. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The man added, little did I know I would need it half an hour later. He never forgot his wife's death. Again and again, he mentions it in mid-October entries. I dare say, the man writes, he never forgot Nahum 1-7. But why did he mention it in his diary along with his wife's death? Because he was strengthening himself in Yahweh his God. It was that promise of God's word, that affirmation of God's character, that kept him on his feet. Store up the promises of God. Daily, remind yourselves of the promises of God. Because when trouble comes, and it will, and it will, you run to the promises of God. Not only did he do that, strengthen himself in the character and the, 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 the word of God, you could say, but in verses 7 through 9, you see him seeking the Lord's direction. I mean, really in prayer. He goes to the priest. The priest brings the ephod. It's part of like... God's way of, in some manner, like there was a, where you would gain like God's uh, revelation or understanding. And he went before with the priest or, 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 you know, asked the priest that he might pray before the Lord and ask him directly, what will happen in this situation? 
and the Lord gave him a very clear understanding of what would take place. You will pursue them and you will have deliverance. Not like partial deliverance. There will be deliverance. And we'll see that as you move forward. And I think even for our lives, we have to say, like, you might say, Dad, I wish I could just ask. Ask God a question, get an answer. Ask God a question, get an answer. And and sometimes when we see these things, we forget that, like, you're reading something that takes you an hour to read, and it's a whole lifetime of things. So there's, like, these specific times, you know, in the life of, of David that we see. But I, but I think it's just important for us to understand that the knowledge that you and I have far exceeds what David had. That's one thing. Very, very important to know. And the priest that we go to is far superior than the priest that he went to. So even though we go to a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, like we sometimes forget that wonderful opportunity that we have to go before the Lord and all of the answers that we have written in his word already. And um, we just, we know that we will be heard and that we have access and it is a glorious thing. We may not always have like, yeah, a specific answer, should I go here or not? But there are so many things that we have that they never really experienced. So in chapter 30, verses 11 through 15, we're looking at this resolution of David's troubles here. We, we see um, the way in which God's going to protect him. Uh, and, and I think it's just, he takes off, you see, with 600 men, he loses 200 of them because of ex- exhaustion. But then God, again, providentially provides him with this little Egyptian who's laying there uh, on the ground, uh, just about dead, and they help revive him, and they begin to ask him questions, and he helps them understand the situation and what's going on. And actually, he's going to be like a guide that leads them into or to this enemy army. And you can just see in this God's providence on display where he is step-by-step guiding David to deliverance. And that's just something you and I, I think, need to remind ourselves of. All these little things along the way are God's weaving together of our life. He just does that. So you move on to 16 through 20. David comes to this place. He finds this army uh, of of people that have just come in and and destroyed them. Look at verse 16. When he had taken um, him down, behold, they... There were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because all of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And so basically he's saying like all of these people are there and and they're just like in throwing this big party. In verse 17, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. And then David got everything back. Everything. I mean, that's what the scripture said. There was, there was nothing. David brought back all. Nothing was, was lost. Everything was recovered. When God says, go down there and I will deliver, nothing was lost. No, nothing. It, it's just a shocking reality to see that on display. So God is delivering David, this is kind of like we would say the resolution of 
the, the troubles that were faced. Now, as you come back, this is just interesting to see. In verse 21 through 26, uh, they're coming back and they meet up with these 200 men. And you've been around people like this. I'm not giving them nothing, you know, like, you know, kind of thing. It's like the 400 are like, we're the ones that went into battle and weren't we great there? You just give those guys their wives and their kids and tell them to hit the road, Jack. They were wimps when we were there in the midst of the battle. They sat on the sidelines. They were like, oh, I'm so thirsty. I'm so tired. And they whined and they sat there. And so let them get what they deserve. Nothing. Kind of is how that went down. And David speaks to them. And he speaks to them in a way that's very powerful where he says in verse 23. And this is what a lot of people don't see. A lot of us don't see. Verse 23. He says, Is it right for us to act in this way since God has given us victory? That, that, that's a critical picture there. Since, I mean, you, you meet some guys sometimes like, I did this. I've done everything. Really? Really? That's crazy. I mean, that's crazy. You are the perfect, you're an exemplary picture of humanity. You are the greatest person in your mind I have ever seen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it's like one of those things, they come back, they think they're all awesome, like we're going to do this, get them out of the way. And David shows that, hey, look, God's the one that delivers. God's the one that does these things. We our trust is in God. God's the one that said go down. God's the one that's guiding. God's the one that provides the Egyptian. God is the one who gets these, or, or is even guiding the whole process of the, how we found these men. God's the one that gave us the strength to fight all night. Just God, God, God. Now, I, I, I just want you to see that because he is doing these mighty things. I am running out of time. But look here, verse 26 through uh, at the end of this chapter, David demonstrates wisdom even further as he begins to, even those men, and there were people in Judah who had lost things, he begins to send that back. And, and all along the way, you're saying like, this man looks like, I mean, again, he's not perfect, but a lot of the things that you see remind you of kingly activity, the way that mature leadership would act. Where they're serving people, they're thinking about others, they're putting things like in the right way, they're making wise decisions. When everybody else is losing their mind, they're steady, there's calmness. But at the end of the day, when he looks back over this, he says, which I would argue, like, it's God doing this. God is delivering, God is working. And God, frankly, is the one who has been building his character over years so that when he is faced with trouble, he is walking faithfully with the Lord. Now, we're going to run through this because we really are finishing this up today. Saul's resolution is this. You remember that Saul had called up in this odd way, Samuel. Samuel says, remember, this whole kingdom's torn from you. And then he says, and you will die. And so you get to chapter 31. It's almost like the narrator says, Leave the David story. I've been putting them in contrast. Now run over here and see what happens with Saul. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. Chapter 31. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain 
Uh, and the Philistines fell, fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua. I'm not sure if that's how you say that. The sons of Saul. And Saul's family is totally destroyed. The three sons are gone. And you think, like, this is just, it's a heartbreaking situation. You think, everything is lost. He, he kind of lived his life trying to preserve something that co- he could not hold on to. And then in chapter 31, verses 3 through 7, you see that the people are pressing hard against Saul. Saul knows that he is about to die. He's already been wounded badly. He looks to his armor bearer and he says, you kill me. And his armor bearer says he won't. And so Saul takes his own life. He throws himself over a sword. And his armor bearer does the same thing. And now we've watched their whole family be done away with. And you're like, this is insane. And one thing about it is just important for us to see is that God's word is true. God's word of judgment to Saul comes to pass. His word of deliverance to David comes to pass. And both of those are a reality. But there are things about Saul's life that just literally are heartbreaking. As you move through the chapter in verses 8 through 10, you see this horrible shame that comes upon them. The God is mocked. Uh, Saul and his family's mocked. It's just a heartbreaking situation where you're like, man, he rejects God's word. And the results of that are, and they are extremely, extremely sad. The only thing that really redeems this whole chapter is the gratitude that the men from Jabesh Gilead show. Uh, when they come and, and, and take his body and they go and give him a proper burial in verses 11 through 13. And that's one of those things where it's like nothing's really great about this situation, but you do see some people honoring the one who had been uh, anointed to be king. So we come away with this, we're looking at all of it, and I would just say to you, Like as I asked you before, when the trouble comes, the question is the trouble that you are facing, is it because you're under the judgment of God or is it because you are with God and he is walking you through the valley of the shadow of death? Where, where, Where do you find yourself? Are you in a place of blessing, although the storm is real and it's raging around you? Are you standing in a state of blessing or curse? How do you know? Romans 10, 9 through 13 says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 13, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I guess the the picture here for us is to say, if you are united to Jesus, if, if you have trusted in Him, if you know Him, if you are in relationship with Jesus, this present storm that you might be finding yourself in will not last. I mean, that that's just... If you are with Him, He's already passed through the shadow of death. He died. He was raised victorious from the grave. And He rules and reigns now. 
If you are with Him, although you may be experiencing great trouble, you know that you're coming out on the other side. That's what 1 Peter 3 says. He has defeated every one of our enemies, and we are in the ark of the cross. And you can hold fast to that. Because the judgment waters or difficulties, whatever you want to say, the dilemmas you find yourself in, at the end of the day, you're coming out on the other side. If you're in the boat with Christ, and He is over there in your mind, sleeping, quiet, or whatever, you can know that you are with the maker of the universe, the calmer of seas, the one who is able to sleep in the storm because he is not worried one bit. So we can be calm in him. We can have a steadiness in the face of trouble. We can hope in our God, our personal God. We can hear his promises. We can run to him in prayer. And we can know that he is with us and he will never leave us ever. But if you are outside of Christ, although at times you may think you are on top of the world, you have built your life on sand. And when the judgment falls, you will either be calling out for rocks to crush you or a sword to pierce you. 1 Samuel reminds us that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And those of us who will come humbly before the Lord of glory will find refuge. And those who stand outside will face His judgment. As was told Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask for a clear understanding of the good and glorious message of the gospel. That deliverance, deliverance is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not one will perish. No one will snatch his children out of his hand. His sheep are his. They've been purchased by his blood. So we pray we would always run to deliverance, to hope, that we would find our shelter in the Almighty. And that if there anyone is here that is outside of Christ, outside of hope, under your judgment, we pray that they would repent today. That they would abandon the idols of this age that promise deliverance where there is no deliverance. And trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.